So undoubtedly, this second harvest, the grape harvest, does symbolize the judgment of the wicked. And I think the imagery is very powerful. It's actually rather gruesome, isn't it? Uh, to have the judgment of the wicked portrayed in this way as the trotting of, of, of grapes in a wine press, we are eventually told uh, that the blood uh, flows away from uh, the holy city for 1,600 uh, stadia. It, it is a gruesome image, and it is meant to be. It's meant to grab our attention concerning the severity uh, of the final judgment. Uh, This was the event that the prophet Joel did prophesy about long before the coming of Christ. Uh, This is the event of which Christ, the apostles, and the prophets did constantly warn about. Some think that the first harvest, the one described in verses 14 through 16, does also depict the judgment of the wicked on the last day. And and this would be the view of G.K. Beale, with whom I usually agree. Uh, His main argument is this, that... Joel 3, 9 through 16 is the Old Testament text standing behind Revelation 14, um, uh, verses 14 through 20. And and with this I agree, it is the main Old Testament text. And and he notices correctly that Joel, when he prophesied concerning the judgment to to come, uh, described it as a twofold harvest. So in the prophet Joel, when we read it there, uh, he did say, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe, go in. Uh, for the wine press is full. So in Joel, uh, the outpouring of the wrath of God is described both as a harvest of grain and the treading of grapes in a wine press, just as it is here in the book of Revelation. But then he does argue that what is true of Joel 3 must also be true of Revelation 14. So according to Beal, both the harvest of grain reaped by the one like a son of man, as described in verses 14 through 16, and the harvest of grapes reaped by the angel who came out of the temple, describes the gathering in and judgment of the ungodly on the last day. Are you tracking with me then? You have two figures with two sickles, and and there's kind of a twofold harvest followed by judgment here, according to to Beal and others and their interpretation, two aspects of the same event, the judgment of the wicked on the last day. But but others think that the grain harvest of Revelation 14, 14 through 16, and by the way, we know it is a grain harvest because the word translated ripe at the end of verse 15 is used to describe grain that dries as it is ripened. Uh, but others think that this grain harvest, the first one mentioned, symbolizes not the judgment of the wicked, but the ingathering of the righteous on the last day unto, not judgment, but unto uh, salvation. And this would be the view of Richard Bauckham and others. And I think this is the correct view. Uh, it seems to me that this passage in Revelation 14, 14 through 20, has as its background not only the prophecy of Joel, uh, though that is primary, but also the teaching of Jesus, who when he spoke of the time of the end, did refer to it as a great harvest wherein both the righteous and the unrighteous would be gathered in, but then distinguished from one another the wicked to everlasting destruction and the righteous to everlasting life. This is the way that Christ and the apostles constantly spoke of the, of the last day, the harvest that would be gathered in. There would be one harvest, but then there would be a distinction made between the righteous and the, uh, and the unrighteous. There, is, uh, two, there are two roads then that all of humanity will follow, one leading to everlasting life, the other leading to everlasting destruction. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 and to verse 24. Matthew 13, verse 24. 
And while you're turning there, I want you to remember that many in Jesus' day thought that when the Christ appeared, he would bring the kingdom of God with him in its full or consummate state. That was the view of many in his day, that when the Christ first appeared, he would usher in the kingdom of God fully. Uh, Jesus was constantly teaching otherwise, though, and here is one example of his teaching on, on this subject. He is here in a parable teaching his followers that his kingdom will not immediately come in fullness, but will be inaugurated at his first coming and will continue for a time as incomplete, unfinished in this world with both the righteous and unrighteous living side by side until his return. And so listen to the parable that he told, Matthew 13, verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Can you picture it? Most of us probably are not farmers here, but you can picture this. So some farmer takes great care to plant a good crop, but some enemy of his comes along and sows weeds amongst the good seeds that he had Sown. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. Sounds like the garden that I planted actually this past year. So many weeds, I could hardly get at the good crop, right? And the, servant, the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? Do you want us to pull up the weeds? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Are you hearing then perhaps the connection here between Matthew 13 and Christ's words and the text we are studying in Revelation 14? Look at verse 36 now. Then he left the crowds, I'm talking about Verse 36 of Matthew 13. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are what? Angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. And so it seems to me that what we have in Revelation 14, verses 14 through 20, is a kind of hybrid Uh, the the teaching of Joel 3 and the Matthew of 13 uh, being brought together into one place. I think that is what is going on there in that text. So the question is, what will happen on the last day or the end of the age? And Christ, as Christ calls it in this parable, the end of the age, um, that's the question that should be on our minds. And, And among other things, what we see is that Christ will return to gather his elect unto glory. I believe that this is the event that is symbolized in Revelation 14, verses 14 through 16. On that last day, at the very end of the age, among other things, Christ will return to gather his elect unto glory. I want you to notice that John saw a white cloud 
And seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. This seems to be to be an obvious vision of Jesus the Christ. He has been described in this way earlier in the book of Revelation. This is a vision of, of Jesus himself. In verse 15 we read, And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. So an angel comes out of the temple and calls out to uh, Jesus Christ, saying to him, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So this angel has this message to proclaim to Christ, saying it's time to reap the harvest. Now, some have been troubled by the words, and another angel, right? Do you see it there? And another angel in verse 15. Uh, Thinking that the word another refers back to the one like a son of man that was mentioned in verse 14. And by this some have concluded that the one like a son of man cannot be Jesus Christ but must be an angel. For John does say and another angel in verse 15. Do you see the problem here? And another angel they think well another is referring back to what has just been said in verse 14. So this must be an angel in verse 14 for here is another one right? Uh, I I think you're following along with what I'm saying. But notice two things. First of all, it would not be entirely inappropriate to refer to the Christ as an angel. For in the Old Testament, the Son of God was sometimes called the angel of the Lord when he did appear to men. And, And so this phrase, the angel of the Lord, does not take away from the divinity of the Son of God, but does highlight his role within the Godhead. He is the one that proceeds from the Father and reveals him Uh, To man. And so that is the first thing to be said to that objection uh, concerning the language of and another angel. Uh, But the second thing to be said is that careful consideration of the text shows that the word another probably does not refer back to the one like a son of man in verse 14, but to the three angels that John saw in verses 16 through 12. So then uh, there are three angels in verses 16 through 12 who were mentioned. And what did they do? Do you remember? They, They pronounced. Warnings concerning the the, the coming of the final judgment. There they are, pronouncing warnings to the world. Uh, Three more are actually mentioned here in verses 15 through 20. And they, we will see, are involved with carrying out the final judgment. And Christ, I believe, is mentioned right in the middle of the first and second groups of angels. So you have three angels in the first passage. Then you have Christ mentioned, one like a son of man. And then you have three more angels who are mentioned, who are involved with the carrying out of, of the final judgment. And so the language of, and another angel appeared, is referring back not to Christ, not to the one like a son of man, but to the first group of three angels mentioned earlier in verses 6 through 12. Some have also been troubled by the fact that it is an angel that tells Christ that it is time to reap the harvest. You see it there in verse 15? So here is Christ, one like a son of man, And here comes an angel out of the temple with a message to proclaim, saying to Christ, as if he is bossing him around, I suppose. That is the thing that troubles some folks. It's time to reap uh, the harvest, right? Another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. What business does an angel have telling Christ what to do? I think that is the question that some have here. But notice where the angel comes from. He comes out of the heavenly temple. In other words, he came from God. And the word that he brought to the one like a son of man was not his own message, but it was God's word. It was was God's message that the angel was proclaiming to the Christ. 
Also, I think it is important to remember Jesus' own teaching concerning the time of the end. His disciples were not very different from you and I. What did they want to know constantly concerning the time of the end? When will it come? When will it be? Give us a date. We would really appreciate a date so that we could adequately prepare, I guess, was their thought. And what did Jesus answer when, when, his, when he was asked that question by his disciples? But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Mark thirteen thirty two. And so what do we see here in Revelation chapter 14, verse 15, except the Father revealing to the Son that the time for the harvest of the earth has come. And He reveals it via His heavenly messenger. The angel says, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. It is now time. And what does the one like the Son of Man do? Verse 16 So he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. And so do you see that symbolized here in Revelation 14, 16 is the event that Jesus spoke most directly about in his earthly ministry. When telling his disciples about his second coming, he said, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. That echoes the Joel 3 passage that we read earlier. And the stars will be following, falling from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Mark thirteen twenty four through 27. <clears throat> This is also the event that the Apostle Paul told the Thessalonians about when he said, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now both of these passages, the one from Christ himself, the other from the Apostle Paul, describe what is being symbolized here in the book of Revelation chapter 14. That is the great harvest at the end of the age, the ingathering of God's people, of the elect unto glory. I believe that is the thing being portrayed here. So what will happen on the last day when Christ returns? Christ will gather his elect unto glory. Secondly, see that on the last day, Christ will return to gather the ungodly unto judgment Uh, This is the event symbolized in Revelation 14, verses 17 through 20. Look at verse 17 with me. We read, Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Uh, It seems that, that another harvest is going to be described besides the one already mentioned. That's the sense you get when you read this text in kind of a straightforward manner. So here's another harvest that's going to be described to us. This time it is not one like a son of man, but an angel who wields the sickle. Verse 18, And the angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine. Of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. Now, remember that in the book of Revelation, it is from the heavenly altar that has now been mentioned many times to us. It is from the heavenly altar that the judgments of God flow. Uh, This angel 
came from there and he has authority over the fire, we are told. So he has special authority over the judgments of God and the carrying out of the judgments of God. This angel then commanded the one with the sickle, saying, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. Do you notice the, the repeated emphasis of, the, of, of the, the, the harvest being ripe? It's time. The time has now come. God has been patient for so long. He has been patient so that his elect might come to salvation. And he's also shown much mercy uh, towards sinners, being patient with them in order to lead some of them to repentance, the elect uh, amongst them. But here, the book of Revelation is showing us, uh, giving us a glimpse of that moment when, when everything is ripe, when the time has come for the end. Uh, do not be confused. Uh, it, it is God and Christ who will ultimately judge the wicked on the last day. This is the work of God and his Christ. They will judge. But you are seeing here in the book of Revelation that God's ministering spirits will also be involved in the outpouring of God's wrath. Uh, they were seen uh, warning prior to that day, earlier in Revelation 14, and now they are seen active in carrying out the judgments of God. And this corresponds to the clear teaching of Christ on the subject when he said, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then they will repay each person according to what he has done. Matthew sixteen twenty seven. Uh, the angel with the sickle then did what he was commanded to do. He swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Uh, wine in the scriptures sometimes symbolizes joy, doesn't it? Um, we're familiar with, with those passages that where wine symbolizes joy, but it also symbolizes judgment. Uh, perhaps this has to do with its red color and its appearance as, as blood. Uh, surely it has to do with how wine can cause men to stagger when it is misused, uh, just as those who have come under judgment will be made to stagger on that last day. Remember how the third angel of Revelation 14, 9 warned. Okay, so here we are going back into the previous passage. But there was this warning pronounced by the third angel saying, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That warning has already been pronounced earlier in Revelation 14. Now we are seeing uh, that, that warning come true. We are given a, a depiction of the outpouring of God's wrath on that last day. The sixth angel is seen carrying out that judgment upon those who have worshipped the beast. These grapes are thrown into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Uh, that's 184 miles put into our modern terms. So can you picture it? It is rather gruesome imagery. Uh, can you picture a river of blood flowing for 184 miles as deep as a horse's head is high? And so depicted here is clearly the final judgment, the great outpouring of God's wrath upon uh, the wicked. But notice that the elect of God are safely home. They're protected inside the city of God, whereas the wicked are judged by God, and the judgment is indeed uh, very great. 
So do you understand what is being depicted here in, in Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20? I believe it is true that at first you have a depiction of the harvest of the righteous unto salvation, of the righteous unto glory. We might call it the rapture, though I do not like that term because it's been so misused in our day. But it's the, it's the gathering in of the elect from every age. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then those who are alive will be caught up to, with the Lord in the air. There is Christ swinging his sickle across the earth, gathering in that grain harvest because it is ripe. All of the elect have been brought in, and so the time has now come. Whereas that second Harvest describes the ingathering, not of the righteous, but of the unrighteous, those not in Christ. And they are gathered in, not to glory, but unto eternal condemnation and judgment. The wrath of God is poured out upon them, and the judgment is indeed very great. So, brothers and sisters, what should we do in light of these truths that are here revealed to us in the book of Revelation? Uh, First of all, I think it is important, we must believe What the Word of God says concerning the time of the end. Uh, We must believe that Christ will indeed return to bring His people safely home and to judge the ungodly. I think many who call themselves Christians in our day do not really believe this. And they are shy, I think, to talk at all about the judgment, the final judgment. For many in our day, they want to talk about God and Christ As only being loving and gracious and merciful, which they are, which he is. And indeed, we do need need to talk about the love and grace and mercy of God. Uh, We are called to proclaim uh, that to the world. But also in the scriptures, Old Testament and New, we do have clear teaching that in the end, our God will judge the wicked. And we must believe it ourselves. And we must proclaim it uh, to the world. Secondly... This passage of scriptures should send us running to Christ for shelter, shouldn't it? It is a rather terrifying thought to come under uh, the judgment of God, to, to have his wrath poured out upon us. And so this passage of scripture should send us running to Christ for shelter. And I think that is one of the reasons it is so important for us to believe this and to proclaim it. Because I do believe the Lord uses passages of scripture such as this to bring men and women to repentance. So here is one who might be listening to this even now, who is in their sin, who does not trust in Christ. And I do hope and pray uh, that the, the teaching concerning the final judgment would send them running to Christ saying, I must, I must be saved. I must be saved. And there is no other salvation except the one that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, Revelation 14, 14 through 20 does not reveal why God will judge Uh, Nor does it reveal how to escape the wrath of God necessarily. But the rest of Scripture does reveal that, doesn't it? And the truth of the matter is this. We have sinned against God. And our sins are are very great and are deserving of God's just condemnation. I think we tend to make very light of our sin. As if it's not that bad, you know. Uh, And really we should not do this. Uh, We should see the severity of of God's judgment here in this text. It is severe, isn't it? The judgment is very great, and we also must understand that God's judgments are perfectly right and just. He does not overreact to our sin, but what we see here is depicted just and right judgment. Does that not then prove the fact that our sins are indeed very great, and they do deserve this kind of severe judgment? We have fooled ourselves into thinking that we are basically good, 
uh, the truth of the matter, the truth that God's word reveals is that we are by nature bent out of shape. We have sinned against our maker. We fail to love him as we ought and we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves. Indeed, we stand guilty before him and would be utterly hopeless were it not for the grace of God. The scriptures tell this story of our sin, of our rebellion against God, the fact that we are at enmity with him. But the scriptures do also tell the story of God's grace, of his mercy, that God being merciful determined to send a savior for us, to send the Christ so that we might be redeemed from our sin, might be delivered from the wrath of God. And this he has done in the person of Jesus Christ who came to this earth, lived a perfect life and died not for his own sins, but for the sins of all who will believe upon him. And so I must plead with you, brothers and sisters, even if you profess Christ now, and especially if you don't, run to Jesus and cling to him. Uh, Indeed, Christ took the wrath of God upon himself so that we would not have to be under it anymore. Christ took the wrath of God upon himself and in our place if we are trusting in him. Thirdly, I do want to exhort you to make your calling and election sure. If you are a Christian, if you have professed faith in Christ, Uh, You must then go on from that profession of faith to make your calling and election sure. Uh, We uh, do not believe that it's possible for someone to lose their salvation, but the scriptures do everywhere exhort the Christian to make their calling and election sure, or to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, and to strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by disobedience. All of these passages of Scripture are examples of the Scriptures exhorting those who profess faith in Christ to continue on in Christ Jesus, to continue on clinging to Him until the very end of time. We are to walk then in obedience to God's law. We are to partake of the means of grace that He has provided. We're to do so very diligently, trembling at the thought of not finishing well and finding ourselves off course. We are to persevere in Christ. We do believe that God preserves us. It is his work ultimately. But we do also see that the scriptures everywhere exhort us to persevere in the Christian life. Christ himself did say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It is not that we are saved through the keeping of God's commandments, We add not one bit to our salvation. We cannot add even an ounce to the work that Christ has accomplished for us on our our behalf. But the truth of the matter is this. If you are saved, if you are regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, if you are a child of God and if you love God, then you will go on keeping the commandments of God. And so we must persevere. We must keep God's commandments from the heart. We are to worship Him alone. We are to worship Him as He has prescribed In his word, we are to bring honor to his name and not shame. We are to worship him, particularly on the Lord's Day Sabbath, as God has commanded. We are to keep this day holy and pure and set apart unto him as a day for worship, a day distinct from all of the other days. I I labor on this point here, brothers and sisters, because I think we need to grow in this regard to understand that today is the Lord's Day. We are to worship God. We are to love Him with all that we are. And in particular, we are to come together as His people on the Lord's Day to give Him worship. And this is what it looks like to preserve, to persevere in uh, the Christian life. We are to give honor to everyone, 
that is due to them. We are to refrain from anger, hatred, and murder. We are to refrain from lust and adultery. We are to protect that which belongs to others and never steal. We are always, as his people, to speak the truth. We are also to be content with what God has given us and to refrain from covetousness. And, and, and I think the thought of judgment, as we have it depicted here in Revelation 14, should indeed cause us to run to Christ, but to cling to him in faith and to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, lest we come short of it ultimately. Fourthly, and finally, I do hope that this passage of Scripture also prompts us to pray for the salvation of those who do not yet know Christ, and to give the gospel to them as the Lord gives us opportunity. That is why we are here, brothers and sisters, ultimately, to give glory to God, to worship Him as He has prescribed, in his word, to love one another in this world, but also to proclaim the good news that there is a Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. We are to say to everyone who is willing to listen to us, repent, turn from your sins, flee from the wrath to come, and look to Jesus. Uh, He is the Savior. He is the only one who has taken the wrath of God for us, and in our place we must run to him. Let us bow together for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we consider this passage of scripture, Revelation 14, 14 through 20, and the great judgment that is eventually there uh, depicted. Lord, it does cause us to tremble at the thought of it. Lord, as we consider it, we do want to confess to you, Lord, you are right, you are just to condemn us in this way for our sins. Uh, Lord, indeed, your judgments are right and and just and true. Uh, They are perfect, Lord. Uh, No one in that day will be able to answer back to you to say that you've got it wrong, Lord. And so in that sense, Lord, we do give you praise for your judgments. But also, Lord, we do ask that you would have mercy upon those who do not yet know Christ. And that you would draw many to salvation through him. Uh, Father, do help us who do know Christ to continue on well in this world. To work out our salvation with fear and trembling. May we, Lord, be diligent to obey your word from the heart because you have regenerated us. May we be diligent to keep on in the means of grace that you have provided, Lord. Uh, lest we come short of the rest that you have provided for us in Christ Jesus. Uh, Father, do help us, Lord, to proclaim the gospel. It is a great privilege to do it, Lord, and I pray that we would be faithful to do so in this world until you return or until you take us home. Father, we pray that the harvest of grain would be very, very great. Lord, we pray that you'd have mercy upon sinners, that you would spare them from your wrath to come. These things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ and all of God's people say, Amen.